going to be message number five regard, regarding law and grace. I've entitled it From Obligation to Rest. Grace isn't a doctrine. Grace is Jesus Christ. And today we're going to get off of the legalistic roller coaster of shame and separation and of performance and embrace your grace identity in Christ so that you can live in intimacy with God. I was a legalist. The church that I was brought up in had code regarding your dress, the length of your hair, no beards were allowed, rock music was forbidden, Christian rock music was frowned upon and talked down about. There was no dating outside of the local fellowship. You dated people within the church. That's where I married my wife. Now that, that, that there's no, that doesn't mean anything. It's just, uh, I'm just commenting. I've tried to reflect on that environment, but <laughs> yeah, I am a lucky man. I'm going to stand over here. <laughs> I think you're right. Now, there was a point in our relationship where we became confident enough to get out of there. And it was just that. It took every ounce of courage and spiritual fortitude to flee. And if you've never been under a, hand, a heavy-handed oversight of elders lording it over and legalistic manipulation of your spiritual walk, you are fortunate. The problem is, is that even after leaving, I continued in moral and religious legalism. Sin management, transactional Christianity, where if I do this, God will do that. In fact, God won't do that until I do this. Doctrinal correctness, translation purity. I wasn't a King James only, but I wasn't far from it. King James only had maybe two friends. <laughs> the New American Standard and the New King James. I absolutely lived out of the judgmentalism of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's why I've called this message this morning from obligation to rest. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 8. But now Jesus has obtained a superior ministry since the covenant that he mediates is also better and is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, no one would have looked for a second one. But showing its fault, God says to them, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will complete a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not look or it will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant and I had no regard for them, says the Lord. I want you to take a look at these words that are highlighted here in particular. 
It isn't uncommon for Christians today to proclaim freedom from the law and just move over a space into a New Testament Torah. Same old legalism, same old bondage, but now it's about moral correctness as it relates to the New Testament and the Gospel. So we claim to be not under the law, but we've created a new one with our New Testament. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus obtained a superior ministry compared to the old priesthood. And that he's overseeing and mediating a better covenant built on better promises. Does anybody know what the word better means? I looked it up. Sometimes it's amazing. You look up the simplest words and it means that in comparison, this one is superior and this one lacks. So Jesus is mediating a covenant that's better. And it says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, no one would have looked for a second one. Imagine that. That first covenant delivered to Moses that Israel lived and walked under had fault. Now we don't throw out our Old Testament. Everything. Paul said everything that was written was written for our instruction and for our learning. But it has a purpose. I'm going to say it this way. All scripture is not equal. Give me just a minute. Excuse me. All scripture is not equal. It's not to be taken. All scripture isn't to be taken with the same gravity or weight applied to it. You're looking right here at the fact that there, is, there are scriptures in our Bible. There's portions of scriptures that are said to be at fault in terms of how, what they describe as the old covenant. It doesn't mean the Bible's at fault. It doesn't mean the Bible is erroneous. It means that the covenant that the Bible talks to us about had fault. And God said, I'm going to come out with a new version of it. It continues, for this is the covenant that I will establish with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their where? Minds. And I, notice he's going to do it, will inscribe them on their where? I am going to make a covenant that doesn't depend on your performance. I am going to put it in your mind and in your heart. And there will be no need at all for each one to teach his countryman or each one to teach his brother saying, come on, you need to know the Lord. You need to get right with God. You need to repent. You need to repent and start following God. There's not going to be any need for that. Why? Because since they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their evil deeds. I'm going to flip this thing around. Where before the law condemned, I'm flipping that around and I'm going to have mercy on their evil. Whereas before it was based on performance and transactional Spirituality, I'm going to flip that around and I'm going to put my laws in their heart and in their mind. I'm going to put by my presence, I'm going to come into their minds and hearts. And I'm going to do this in such a way that everybody is going to be aware of my presence and have opportunity. It's going to change the way you evangelize, he said. You're not going to have to go out there and preach sin and law and performance and you need to change. You need to come to know the Lord. No, you'll come alongside individuals from now on and say, you know, God loves you. Can't you sense his presence? He's with you right now. 
all the great things that have happened in your life this week, that's because God loves you. He's a good God. He's not condemning you. He's not against you. He's not pointing out your faults. And he's not an angry God. I'm going to do this. I'm going to flip this thing on its head. Verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their evil deeds and their sins I will remember no longer. You know, if God has forgotten their sins, why are you and I keeping track of them? When he speaks of a new covenant, read that last several words. He makes the first what? You mean there are portions of scripture that are written for instruction and that we can learn and we can grow and be instructed by, but they're obsolete in relationship to the better covenant, the better promise? What you've got to understand is that the Old Testament law, it changed in relationship to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Let me give you an example. In Jesus' teaching, especially in the Beatitudes, what we call the Beatitudes, found primarily in Matthew's Gospel. Luke records it as well. It's not quite as complete or detailed as Matthew's account. Jesus makes comments like this. You have heard it was said. And he'll quote an Old Testament scripture. And then he'll say this. But I say to you, and he'll give them a new take, a new covenant, a new expression of God's heart. It was written, it was said, you heard it was this way, but I say to you, in that very breath, Jesus is placing himself above the law, above certain scriptures, saying, you're not going to look at that anymore. You're not going to follow that. You're going to follow me. I reject a flat reading of the scripture. And by that I mean where we read our Bibles and we say this foolish comment, and I used to preach this. <laughs> See if you identify with it. I used to preach this. Well, bless God if the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, the Bible says a lot of things that you are not supposed to believe or take as today's covenant truth. And you better not follow it. And that doesn't settle it. Because you and I agree on what the Bible says. You and I don't agree on what the Bible means. Think about that. All of the discourse today, all of the argument, all of the, well, he's right, she's right. It should be viewed this way. It should be taken this way. Well, God has shown me it's, all of them basically agree that the Bible says a certain thing, but they do not agree that it means the same thing. Now, is everybody wrong except our tribe? Is everybody wrong except the tribe you belong to? Everybody else's view of scripture is wrong except the tribe you belong to? And that's why God said, look, I'm just not going to leave it up to that. I'm going to, I'm going to flip this thing. I'm going to turn it on its head. And I am going to put my law in their heart and in their mind. Look at this. This is Paul's writing in the book of Galatians chapter 3. Galatians, Galatians, have you completely lost your common sense what would you do if I got up some, some Sunday and started my sermon that way? Genesis. Oh, you Genesis members. Have you lost your common sense? <laughs> 
Can't you see how the law bewitched you and blurred your vision to distort the revelation of what the cross of Christ accomplished in you? This was so clearly predicted in Scripture. How can you not be persuaded by the truth? Please, would you reason with me on this one issue? On what basis did you receive the Holy Spirit? Are we talking about a gift or reward here? What kind of message ignites faith? What a condemned sinner and failure you are, as revealed in the law, or what God believes to be true about you as revealed in the gospel. Let's not confuse law and grace. And therein is the fundamental difference between law and grace. Law condemns, law looks at your unworthiness, and law calls out your performance, your behavior, and you need to change to become like God. Grace looks at you and says, you know what? You can't do anything in and of yourself to be like God. It was all accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. And because of what Jesus did for us, in him we are made righteous. And in Christ you were brought into God's presence and reconciled and made holy. Oh, Foolish, one translation says. Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Now, he was talking to believers. He was talking to spirit-filled believers. It's possible as a spirit-filled believer sitting in congregations like this to be bewitched, to be taken, to be fooled, to be led astray into thinking that performance-based adherence to doctrine and theology and law will bring you closer to God, causes God to accept you. And all of it is nothing but legalism and lies. Why? Because what it's doing, it's pointing out your failure and that you're a sinner and that you need to be something, change your change yourself instead of what God believes to true, be true about you as revealed in the gospel. The new covenant reveals who you are in Christ. The old covenant says you've got to change to be like Christ. You've got to change to become something you're not. In the new covenant, it's about who we already are. In the old covenant, it's about, oh, you fall so far short. You need to get it right. That's the difference between legalism or law and grace. Now, to help us this morning, I want to point out and just give you real quick seven different legalisms and lies that we often hear taught as Christian doctrine. You ready? Number one, salvation means giving your life to Christ. You need to make Jesus the Lord. I want to tell you something this morning. Jesus is not interested in your old life in Adam. He put that on the cross. It was crucified. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, we know that our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin would no longer dominate us. The New Living Translation says, so that sin might lose its power in our lives. God's not interested in you dedicating your life to him. He's already done the work. Salvation doesn't mean me giving my life to Christ. Salvation means he gave his life to me. There's a difference. The good news is that Jesus gave you his life, not that you need to give yours to him. 
religion always makes it about what I give, what I dedicate, what I surrender to God. And God's not interested in any of that. God said, you can't do that. In your power, you're powerless to do that. In fact, that just becomes a dead work in legalism and law. New Torah. New Testament Torah. I'm going to take my law and I'm going to put it in your heart and I'm going to write it on your minds. I'm going to do it. And so I'm just not even going to look at your sin anymore the same. I'm going to dismiss your sin. I'm going to relieve you of that even. Salvation is receiving his life into us, not us giving our life to him. It's more about how God received us into his heart through Christ than about how I receive Christ into mine. Boy, you missed a good place to at least say amen. Oh my gosh. Give me just a minute here. I want to make an adjustment on my uh, dooley flotchy. I love this, I love this, I love this. I chose the Lord. You didn't choose the Lord. <laughs> oh yeah, I chose the Lord. No, you didn't choose the Lord. John chapter 1 verse 12. Everyone who realizes their association in him, convinced that he is their original life and that his name defines them, in them he endorses the fact that they are indeed his offspring begotten of him. He sanctions the legitimacy of their sonship. Isn't that beautiful? Now, a lot of translations say, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. But that word received is the word labano, lambano. And it means comprehend, grasp, or identify. Everyone who comprehends, everyone who grasps, everyone who identifies their association in him, convinced that he is their original life and that his name defines them, in them he endorses the fact that they are indeed children of God. They are his offspring. Yeah, but I chose the Lord. I've, I've surrendered my life to the Lord. No, you haven't. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. John chapter 15, verse 16. You didn't choose me, I chose you. Well, but you need to make Christ first in your life. Oh, how often have I preached that? You need to put Jesus first. Now, wait a minute. Jesus isn't on some list. What list do you have Jesus on that you're doing this comparison so that you're going to put him first? Get him off of your list. He's not first. The scripture says he is my life. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will, uh, will appear with him in glory. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer, longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So the life that I now live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. He is my life. He's not first in a list. Number two. Oh, you know, we're just sinners saved by grace. One of the biggest lies preached in pulpits all over. You're just a sinner saved by grace. Excuse me? You are not. You've been born again. The Bible says you are a new creature, a species that never existed before. Look at this. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. See there, Pastor Jeff, it says that's conditional, if any man. Well, that's one way of looking at it. What if that if isn't a condition, but it's a 
conclusion. If you read the verses before that, you'll find that that if isn't a condition, it's a conclusion. Where Paul says, all men in Adam died, but all men in Christ have been made alive. And so, concluding, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, a species that never existed before. Stop referring to yourself by the old man and start referring to yourself by the new nature that God gave you in Christ. This Greek word for new creature used here by Paul means to bring into existence something out of nothing. God put to death your old man. That's why you shouldn't be offering it to him. Well, I just need to... There's, a, there's an old hymn, beautiful hymn, beautiful hymn. I surrender all... Help me sing it. Help me sing it. I surrender all... Now, there's beautiful meaning in that when it comes to just yielding to his presence, yielding to his love, yielding to his power. Yes, yes, I surrender. But if it means I need to give God more of myself, no, stop that. That's legalism and a lie. Jesus gave you all of him and then renamed you. He recreated you, brought you into existence out of something that was never even there. Made you a new identity, gave you a new identity. Here's your identity now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. Could you say it out loud? I am the righteousness of God. I am a new species that never existed before. Christ is my life. Therefore, I am in him. He is in me. I am surrendered. I'm already surrendered. He's in me. I'm in him. And by the way, he didn't ask for your vote when he did what he did on the cross for you. He didn't ask you to approve it. He didn't do it based on whether or not you were going to accept him or not. That's why the Mirror Bible has that translation of uh, John chapter 1 verse 12 correct. If we acknowledge, if we realize, I'm going to go back to it. I, I love what Francois has done with this. Everyone who realizes or everyone who comprehends or grasps or identifies with your new nature, to them, he comes into your life and he validates that new name. He validates that new nature. Third legalistic lie preached in many, many pulpits that becoming a Christian means having your sins forgiven. Boy, we're upsetting some apple carts here this morning. <laughs> Dear ones, listen to me. Salvation is much more than personal forgiveness. He came to give us life. John chapter 10 and verse 10. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. The gospel isn't simply a personal message of forgiveness and going to heaven. The gospel's never been about going to heaven. That wasn't the promise. The gospel is, the good news is about how Jesus reconciled humanity back to God and how that God took sin and put it to death in the body of Jesus. And then how Jesus introduced the kingdom of heaven here on earth and said, the kingdom of God is among you. He also said, the kingdom of God is within you. Look at yourself. That's just how it came out. Look, look at yourself. <laughs> Say this, the kingdom of God is within me. You're not waiting to get there. Yeah, you're not waiting to get somewhere to experience the key. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? 
on earth as it is. What are you waiting for? Jesus taught us to pray that. And yet we thought salvation was about forgiveness and going to heaven. Salvation is about how God reconciled all humanity back to God. And then introduced us to the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Look at this one. 2 Corinthians 5.19 That God was reconciling the world. Yeah, but they have to pray the prayer. They have to repent. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Yeah, if they repent and they go to church and they change the way... No, it says God was reconciling the world to himself. You weren't even born yet. In fact, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 that Jesus is a lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. In God's heart and mind, before you were ever an Adam, before you were ever a thought in your parents' eyes or heart, before you were ever a glimmer, when you came out of the womb, and began to cry. God had already reconciled you to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. This is the gospel. Dear ones, the disciples, the apostles in their preaching didn't announce forgiveness of sins. They announced peace on earth goodwill to men, humanity. God has reconciled you to himself. I love that. All right, number four. We focus on overcoming sins. One of the biggest lies and legalisms ever foisted upon the church. That we should focus on overcoming sins. Dear one, sin is not, sin is a non-entity in God's eyes. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26 says, But now he has appeared once for all at the consummation of the ages to do what? To put away sin by his sacrifice. Do you remember how, you know, the, in the teaching of the New Testament, especially Paul's teaching, he tells us that what's written uh, in the law and regarding the old priesthood and regarding the sacrifices is a shadow. Now, how many of you know the shadow is not the real thing? It's a projection of the real. Are you with me? So when you are reading the Old Testament, when you're reading about the old priesthood, when you're reading about the uh, regulations and laws, when you're reading about the sacrifices for sin and atonement and all of those things, that's a shadow. Everybody say shadow. shadow. Which means it's not the real thing. The real thing's yet to come. This is a shadow of what was to come. That, that is the argument of the book of Hebrews. All right. Now, in the shadow, what they would do with the lamb is lay their hands on the lamb and God would accept that as atonement for their sin and then they would run the lamb off into the wilderness. They didn't kill him. They ran him off. The sin offering, the lamb was run off into the wilderness. And by the way, the priest was not angry when he did this. It had nothing to do with being mean or angry or upset with the sin of the people. It was what God made available. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think everybody in the entire nation of Israel understood when the priest was doing that, that they needed to claim it, personally apply it, be present there, understand it? How many of you know there were Jewish people, there were Israelites who did not apply, who did not claim, who were completely unaware of what was going on in the temple that day when the sacrifice was offered. And yet, we're told that the sacrifice, the atonement for that sin, was for the entire nation. It worked for everybody. 
Dear ones, Jesus is a better sacrifice, built on better promises, and he's done it once, never to die again. And in that one time, he paid for all of humanity's sin. And so when we preach this thing that we need to focus on overcoming sins, the Aramaic translation of Hebrews 9.26 says, He offered his soul one time with his sacrifice to inactivate sin. Have you ever heard somebody say, Well, my sin is under the blood. My sin is covered in the blood. It is not. It's taken away. Your sin is not covered. Your sin is not under the blood. It's taken away. But now he has appeared once for all at the consummation of the ages to put away sin. Don't claim your sin is under the blood. That's nonsense. The sacrifice, it used to be under the blood. It used to be in the old covenant. That's, that's an old covenant thing. We're preaching it today like this is New Testament revelation. That is an old covenant truth that your sin is under the blood, that sin was covered by the blood. That's why they had to continually offer sin sacrifices year after year after year. But the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus offered himself once for all, never again to have to do it. Why? Because he's a better sacrifice. And he didn't just cover sin. Sin isn't just under his blood. He removed sin. Hallelujah. Yes. Translation says abolish. That he abolished. Now he's appeared at the fulfillment of the ages. So to, this is? To about the Passion Translation. That he abolished sin once and for all. Mm. Isn't that good? He abolished sin once for all. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together. Would you read this? God made alive together with him. When did God make you alive? When Jesus rose from the dead. See, this, this, you were co-crucified, co-buried, and co-resurrected. God, read it, made you alive with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. Law, 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 old covenant, old sacrifice, yearly atonement for sin constantly. We've got to do better. We've got to perform. We've got to go confess our sins. We've got to go get right with God. We've got to surrender. We've got to commit our lives. We've got to rededicate and get closer to the Lord. Lord, we need revival. Only reason you need revival is because of the Old Testament idea of God's presence coming and God's presence going because of the people's sin and lack of willingness to be yielded to the Lord. But that's not a New Testament passage. The New Testament reality is habitation, not revival. God doesn't leave now, and he doesn't come because of your righteous behavior. He comes because of Jesus Christ. He comes in our life. He comes into our church service because of Jesus, because Jesus made us to be the righteousness of God in Christ. He doesn't come because of your moral behavior. He doesn't come because you prayed enough this week. He doesn't come because you read your Bible and quote, quoted enough scripture this week. He comes because he loves us. He comes because of a new covenant. And his name is Jesus. Grace is Jesus Christ. It is not a doctrine. It is the person of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Oh my gosh. Don't patty cake. Come on. Give the Lord a hand clap. Go on. <clears throat> By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside. How'd he do it? He nailed it to the cross. And then he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Yes, thank you, Jesus. Quit 
Stop it right now, today. Make it your last morning where you continually name the devil's name and say, well, the devil's after me and the devil did this this week and the devil stopped this this week and the devil hindered this this week. How is the devil doing that when Jesus disarmed him and put him to open shame and then walked through the city in glory, triumphing over them like a Roman processional leading captive captives? Look what we've accomplished. Look who we went to war with and beat. And all the captives would be in chains, walking through the city streets of Rome as they led captive, captivity captive. That's what Jesus did. The devil's not all that. I said the devil is not all that. You stop talking about the devil like he's got all this power, all this authority, all this ability to hinder you, to block you, to stop you, to make you sick, to put this on you, to put that on you. Stop it. That comes out of legalism. It comes out of a misunderstanding of what Jesus has accomplished. You're still operating under the Old Testament to claim that the devil has been doing anything in your life. Well, how about the fact that the devil came and tempted Jesus? That was before Jesus' Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus hadn't yet risen from the dead. Jesus hadn't yet gone into the grave. Say, Pastor, you better move along or this is going to become a long sermon. <laughs> All right, number five. It's taught today, and this is a lie, this is a lie, that we must continually ask forgiveness. And oh, here's a companion one. That if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. Here's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. But now he has prepared once for all the consummation of the ages to put away sin by his sacrifice. What are you doing continually asking for forgiveness of something that he put away? We've taken the single passage, really, there's really just a single passage we base all of our theology about confession on, and that's 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Want to go there? First John chapter 1, verse 9. Let's look at it. I don't have it for the screen, so you'll have to turn in your Bible. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How many of you have ever heard the fact or this principle of interpretation of Scripture, and it's cardinal, it's foundational, that to properly interpret a verse or a passage, you have to read it in context, which means you have to read it in the context of including the verses before and the verses after. That's the context. Then secondly, you need to read it with an understanding of who the author was writing to and what the times and the seasons were socially and so forth because things are said in particular lights depending on who he is speaking to. Now, every theologian will tell you and admit that 1 John, especially chapter 1, in particular chapter 1, was written to a group of people called the Gnostics, right? There was a, they were having a great amount of trouble, a great deal of trouble in the Christian church because of a group, a movement called Gnosticism. Gnostics didn't believe that Jesus had come in the flesh. Gnostics didn't believe in material, uh, the realism of material being, material presence. They believe everything was spiritual, sort of like our modern-day Christian science, right? Christian scientists 
you know, that this chair doesn't really exist, it's just spiritual. Okay. That's Gnosticism. Now, the Gnostics didn't believe in sin and therefore didn't need, believe you needed to be forgiven of sin. So if you read the verses prior to verse 9, he says, Now, if you say you do not have sin, you're a liar. <laughs> and the truth is not in you. You have to admit to move God's way and to embrace the new covenant, you have to admit that there is sin. Secondly, you have to admit that there's a Savior who died for that sin. He hung on a cross because of my sin and your sin and the sin of humanity. Okay? Now he says, if you don't believe that, then you are in darkness. Those are the preceding verses. Then he says this, primarily to the Gnostics. However, if you confess your sin, then all of this power goes into operation for you. Now, this hinges on the word confess. Confess does not mean to tell God or to inform God. The word confess is homologeo. It means to agree with, to acknowledge. So in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, what we have being written to Gnostics, trying to help the church through this difficult period of, of gosh, the Gnostics say, there is no sin. That's not even real. We don't even need a Savior. No, you need a Savior and there is sin. And if you acknowledge, if you agree with God that Jesus paid the price for your sin, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. That passage has been used by more preachers and more churches to beat up on Christian people and Christ followers that you need to daily be checking. You need to be combing through all of your activity, all of your attitudes, all of your behavior, and you need to be sure there's no unconfessed sin. Because if there's unconfessed sin and you're not forgiven, well then that jeopardizes your future. That jeopardizes your eternal security. This is a lie out of the pit of hell, dear ones. It stems out of legalism and Old Testament law. We do not live under a day where we have to continually, repetitively inform God we've sinned. What we do is acknowledge and agree with God that there is sin. He paid the price for it. I have a new identity that he's made me righteous and that in Christ I am free from it because he abolished it. And he also dealt with the one who authored it, Satan. You say... Jeff, are you dismissing sin? Are you treating it casually, flagrantly? Are you saying that it's okay to sin and it's no big deal? No, absolutely not. Because here's the deal. Whatsoever you sow, that you will reap. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, If you sow to your flesh, you will of your flesh reap corruption. But if you sow to the things of the Spirit, you will of the Spirit reap life. Well, what do you want to walk in? Just ask yourself, what do you want to walk in every day? Do you want to walk in life and freedom and liberty and joy and peace and patience? Or do you want to live and walk in the fruit of your flesh? And so when I do sin, I get on my knees before the Father. And I say, Father, you know I blew it. Man, that was stupid. In fact, that wasn't the first time, was it? I've done this a number of times, haven't I? God, I'm so thankful that Jesus took all my sin. God, I'm so thankful that you reconciled me through Jesus to yourself. God, I'm so thankful that you don't look upon my evil anymore, but that you've put it as far as the east is from the west. God, I just praise you right now for your strength, your love, your holiness surging through my veins that will help me never do that again. Thank you, God, for my freedom. 
You see, that is a, that is a completely different approach to sin than this sense that you have to continually confess your sin. But what about where Jesus said that if I don't forgive, then God won't forgive me, really? You remember when I said, I reject the flat reading of Scripture, which essentially means the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. That's stupid. If that's the way you read your Bible, right? You... All scripture doesn't have equal weight. All scripture must be interpreted and applied in the light, number one, of new covenant, but most importantly, in the person of Jesus, you must understand what is written. Now, when Jesus said that, he was speaking to Israel. He was teaching to the Jewish mind and heart. He was teaching and preaching under the law. And he had not yet died for sin or risen again. And so it would be true to the Jewish mind and heart prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that if you don't forgive, then God's not going to forgive you. That was a concept that was taught in the Old Testament law. Jesus was upholding their law. But dear ones, that is not New Testament covenant. And remember, we started with the fact that Jesus is presiding over a new covenant based on better promises. Let me show you what those promises are. Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. What does the word all mean? Does anybody know what the Greek word for all means? All. Yeah, it just means, all. look at this, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ forgave you. It is not a question of God forgiving your sins. If you don't forgive somebody, man, is that going to start. You know what I liken it to? And excuse, excuse the crassness of this in, in, in such a setting. But it's like having a problem with your bowel movements. To where eventually, to where, uh, eventually, if you don't take care of that, you might have to go see the doctor and get one of these, what do they call them, enemas, clean you out. That's what will happen to you spiritually. If you live in constant unforgiveness instead of choosing to forgive, how? How do you forgive now? Just as God through Christ has forgiven you. You don't forgive because you feel like it. And by the way, forgiveness doesn't mean forgetness. Some things shouldn't be forgotten. Not until there's recompense. Not, not until there's some correction. Not until there's some debt paid on that. That's what jail is for. That's what prison is for. That's what things like that are for. And there's different societal levels of that. That if you harm, if you do evil, then there's something that's got to be paid there. And that's very societal. But it's never an issue in the heart and mind of God. Because no matter what you do, no matter how grievous your sin is, in Christ, through Christ, you have been forgiven. That's why you can go to the prison. You can sit. You can sit with the prisoner and assure them there is hope. God loves you. He's not mad at you. Now, you're going to have to stay here for a while, but God's not mad at you. You're going, to have to, you're going to have to live out your sentence, but God's not angry with you. God forgives you in Christ. You, get, you see what I'm saying? So let's stop this preaching that you've got to ask forgiveness. Let, let's hurry. The sixth one is this. We've talked about how that sin breaks fellowship. No, it doesn't. Because Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar away have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing you can do to get God to separate from you. There's nothing you can do to get God to break fellowship with you. Keep in mind, the story of the prodigal 
son. Do you remember how that he went to his father, said, hey, I want my inheritance. I'm leaving. And he left. He spent it on riotous living, the translation says. And then he found himself feeding pigs, slop to pigs. And he came to himself, the Bible says. And he said, I'm going to go back to my father. I had it better at my father's house. And when I get there, I've got this plan. I'm going to work this thing out. See, he was operating in legalism and old covenant law. I'm going to work this out. When I get back to my father, I'm going to say, Father, you know how unworthy I am. I'm not expecting to be treated as your son anymore. Look, Father, if you'll just hire me as one of your servants, I I I'll do whatever you want me to do around here. It'd just be good to be back home and not feeding slop to hogs. Right? He worked out this whole plan of legalism in how he was going to respond to the father. And then he started walking. And the father, every day, had been work looking for him since he had left. Every day, the father would stand up on the fence and look, see if his son was coming home. And this day, he saw his son in the distance. His son was coming. And the Bible doesn't say that the son had to come and bow down, pour out his heart, come up with this legalistic plan of restoration. The Bible says the father ran and met his son and grabbed him and rejoiced and said, kill the fatted calf. Let's have a party. Put a ring on his finger. Go get the best garments. My son, who was lost, has come home. Let me ask you a question. During all that time, whose attitude and perception changed? The son's or the father's? The father's attitude and perception of his son never changed. It was the son's perception of the father that changed. Sin doesn't break fellowship. You're God's kid. And number seven, you need to resist sin and then you'll become holy and godly like God is. This religion, religious teaching is prevalent in legalism. Becoming godly is about our behavior. If I diminish the number of sins I commit and increase the number of good things I do, well, then I'll become holy. It's a lifestyle of dualism. Oh, yeah, I'm in Christ, but I have to live a performance-based life to be approved. The reason you are godly is because he made you righteous, and God's spirit is inside of you, not because of the things that you do. Look at this, Romans 3. Therefore, by the deeds or the keeping of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge or the awareness of sin. Did you see that? By the law is the knowledge or awareness of sin. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 5. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God in Christ. There's nothing you can do to be holy. There's nothing you can do to gain God's approval. You have God's approval, all of it. You are his kid. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. The reason you are godly is because you were made righteous in Jesus Christ. Did you know that the strength of law, the strength of the law, excuse me, the strength of sin is the law? You're constant reminding yourself of how short you come and how much you need to do to gain God's approval actually strengthens the very thing you're trying to stop doing. Romans 7 verse 8, for apart from the law, sin is dead. The power of sin is the law, 1 Corinthians 15. So what now, Pastor Jeff? What now? Look at this. Are you tired? Mm-hmm. Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. And you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. 
I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Here's the Passion Translation. Are you weary, carrying heavy burden? Then come to me and I will refresh your life for I am your oasis. <clears throat> From obligation to rest. Grace versus law. What do you do? This morning, there is a surrender. There is a surrender we need. It's surrendering to His grace. 